Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm Eric. And I'm Joe. And this is Speaking of Race. A couple episodes ago, we interviewed historian Rob Schwaller about race in colonial era Mesoamerica in a process of racialization. Feedback between local words and categories of the indigenous people and the Spanish legal system in Mexico produced some racial categories, but according to Rob's research, there weren't any real hard and fast rules about defining races until later in the 1500s. Still, the words and ideas associated with these lineages filtered back into Europe, and some natural philosophers, people who we would today call scientists, came up with some new notions about who the people of the Americas were and how they came to be a half a world away. So today we want to move into the 17th century. That's the 1600s. That's the funny century numbering thing. We want to see how the very (laughs) loose and rough notions of family and heredity began to turn into harder concepts of race. I, for one, would really like to assign blame to somebody for coming up with the modern concept of race. Who can we blame? It's an important question. Such a blamer. (laughs) Um, Well, we, we know slavery must have something to do with the story, right? Historians and archaeologists have shown that slavery in one sense or another was practiced by people living in North and South America before the Europeans showed up. But things intensified in the 1500s when explorers like Columbus and those that followed enslaved Native Americans in large numbers exported enslaved Native Americans to other Caribbean islands when the slaves rose up against their masters. Um, Besides rebelling against slavery, Native Americans died in large numbers from diseases. Right? Like smallpox brought by Spaniards and Portuguese. At the very beginning of the 16th century, in 1501, there were fewer than two dozen Spanish servants of African descent who had grown up in Spanish households, and they became the first Africans that were imported into the New World. The connection between Africa and the slavery trade grew and grew under the early attempts by the Spanish and Portuguese at what is referred to today as exploitation colonialism, where they're basically drawing everything out of a resource, a colonial resource that they can. But it really took off after the Dutch, the French, and the English began to establish their permanent colonies in the Americas. Right, and not surprisingly, it's during this more intense period of African slavery in the late 1500s and early 1600s that European natural philosophers started to ask two important questions. First, where had all these people come from way back when? And second, were they all the same kind of person? Were they all the same sort of human beings? Um, And this is the origin of the monogenism and polygenism debate that we've talked about before in earlier episodes. It's also the origin of the old scientific concept of race that claims differences between people are, are sort of essential or real, because of some practically unchanging biological property. Now, the ideas that these early natural philosophers came up with about race didn't just spring from uh, nothing whatsoever. We've talked about the ancient concepts of race a couple of episodes ago, the notion that there weren't very well-defined ideas about what we think of as race in antiquity. But there were origin stories that came to be associated with different groups of people. And these origin stories became more and more important as slavery became more important to the economy of these European colonies. 
and two of the most important origin narratives for the European natural philosophers are the Adam and Eve story from the Bible and the Noah and the global deluge story with the slavery justification story You remember, attached. that's the one where Noah gets drunk and, he, and then for some reason gets naked and his son Ham <laughs> sneaks up on him and then Noah curses Ham's son Canaan to be the servants to the other ones. That'll Such teach a, him. It is a scandalous <laughs> story. Um, so... So those might be the dominant accounts of human origins, but for centuries, even religious natural philosophers worried that there were some pretty clear flaws in them. For one, um, just after the Adam and Eve narrative, there's this one where one of their sons, Cain, kills the other one, Abel, the famous Cain and Abel story, and God punishes Cain by exiling him. And there's this really odd line in that account. Um, Cain gets all whiny to God that he would be a wanderer and that anyone who came across him would kill him because he would be ostracized. And God agrees, and so he gives Cain a mark so that other people won't kill him. But that's kind of weird, right? There aren't any other people upon the earth other than Adam, Eve, and Cain, at least if we take the story literally. So who's Cain worried about um, is going to run into him and kill him? And then... In the very next passage, Cain takes a wife and builds a city. And so where did the wife come from if there were no other people around? And how about the inhabitants of the city? And why do they even need a city for just the two of them? So it's weird questions like these that were raised in the scriptures themselves that led to the concept of pre-Adamism, which just means the belief that humans existed before Adam and Eve. Now, pre-Adamism is actually an old idea. In fact, uh, we could go back all the way to the Roman emperor Julian, known as Julian the Apostate, who was a follower of Constantine the Great. And Julian the Apostate wrote this book called Against the Galileans, which was basically meant to discredit Christians in the middle of the 4th century. About a half century later, Augustine of Hippo felt the need to argue against Julian's ideas of pre-Adamism in his famous book, The City of God. These ideas took on a new urgency about a thousand years later, when good old Christopher Columbus docks in Lisbon, Portugal in 1493, and whoops, he has about eight surviving Taino natives on his boat coming from Hispaniola, eventually uh, Haiti and Santo Domingo, that he brings into Portugal and wants to sell as slaves. Part of the issue here, though, is that Columbus, in his great wisdom, didn't use the most up-to-date Arabic calculations for the size of the earth, And so when he was sailing across the ocean, he was actually envisioning a globe that was much smaller. Columbus's golf ball-sized idea of how large the world was, as opposed to the actual grapefruit that it is, made him think that he had run into either Japan or the Spice Islands in the Southeast Pacific instead of running into the New World, as we now know. Anyway, the name Indio got attached to these people that he was discovering, or at least discovering from his perspective. And on his second voyage, he captured several hundreds of these so-called Indians, sold them in the slave markets on the Mediterranean coast over the objections of Queen Isabella. The sudden appearance of large numbers of potentially new people in the world required some sort of explanation from all of these wonderful minds that were floating around in the... 16th and 17th centuries, 15th and 16th centuries. Such snark. (laughs) Um, But but they didn't, yeah, you. They didn't think of these Indians, so-called, as descendants of some pre-Adam ancestor at first, right? No, not exactly. Ptolemy, the ancient Roman astronomer and geographer, had a model that there were four continents spread across our round globe. 
and each of those four continents was populated by a different type of human. Europe and Asia and Africa, what consisted of his known world, was one of the continents, and then there were three others of them floating out there with different kinds of people on it, and so that was the most natural place to go for an explanation of who were these strange Indios. Okay, so perhaps the Native Americans are just Ptolemy's primordial inhabitants, but of course, how do they get there? It seems that if you wanted to believe in Ptolemy's multiple continents idea, you'd also have to believe that there were different origins for each group of people. Now, that actually is something that seems to have been mentioned by the alchemist Theophrastus Bombastus Ariolus von Hohenheim, well, better known as Paracelsus. <laughs> he seems to have mentioned something like this in the early 1500s, but it was not very well formalized. If I were him, I would have gone with the other name, <laughs> not Paracelsus. Just saying. <laughs> it's a lot of words. Um, so there was also this theory circulating that maybe Indians were just descendants of ancient Scythians who'd migrated in North America. Um, Scythians were Central Asian sort of semi-nomadic populations known to the ancient Greek historian Herodotus for their ability to fight effectively on horseback. They're like those dudes from Game of Thrones. You know who I'm talking about? The Dothraki. Yeah, like that. Um, so one popular theory in the early 1600s was that some of the Eastern Scythians traveled all the way to the New World. And funny enough, this seems sort of related to the idea about the Bering Strait land bridge that is, in fact, the dominant archaeological explanation today. There was another idea floating around, too, and that was the notion that maybe the Native Americans were descendants of the lost tribes of Israel. There were the ten, these were the ten tribes that were captured by the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century BCE, and then they were scattered to the various corners of the earth. There was actually a 17th century Portuguese traveler, Antonio de Montesinos, who convinced Jewish leaders in Amsterdam that he had located some of these lost tribes when he was in the Ecuadorian jungle. So Scythians, lost tribes of Israel, that's funny because these Dothraki, are actually... maybe. These are the accounts that Hugo Grotius, well, whose real name was Hugo de Groot, and I wonder if he just walked around saying, I am Groot all the time. <laughs> anyway, he tried to debunk these in this book that he wrote called The Dissertation on the Origins of the American Peoples in 1642. Grotius was a well-known Dutch lawyer and a statesman. He's actually famous today for being an early advocate of the international legal agreement stuff that sets up the uh, League of Nations and then eventually the United Nations. Uh, he's also the guy who formulated the notion that the sea could not be owned by any one nation. He doesn't really get any press for being particularly scientific, but in the 1630s, Grotius heard these earlier rumors about the origins of Native Americans and decided that he would set out to debunk them. So the Lost Tribes of Israel, how would they have crossed the Atlantic Ocean in primitive ships 23 centuries earlier? Grotius thought that this was just religious wishful thinking. And the Scythian Empire? The Scythians were known to be constantly on horseback. So why didn't Europeans in the New World find any native horses in the New World? The people that lived there couldn't be descendants of Scythians. So instead, Grotius proposes three population events. First, he thinks that Norse must have come across and populated Canada, going down even the east coast of North America. Then there was a second population event. Africans sailed across the ocean and populated the Caribbean islands, and then down to the eastern side of South America. And finally, the third event, he thought Chinese sailors traveled down the west coast of the Americas and eventually settled in Peru, where they would eventually become the Inca. 
the interbreeding between all three of these groups, coupled with the new environments into which these three populations entered, created that vast skin panoply that Grotius heard about in North and South America. But, you know, granted, he didn't have any firsthand experience with anyone from the New World. You know what else is creepy, though? What's creepy? When Jose Melgar <laughs> discovered the Olmec colossal heads in the mid-19th century, that's two centuries after Grotius, he too conjectured that the Olmec were of African origin. And what's more, in the 1970s, Smithsonian archaeologist Betty Jane Meggers said that she found botanical and artifactual and even parasitical evidence that South American populations had East Asian origins, which is, that's pretty interesting, right? Dude. Sorry to burst your conspiracy theory bubble, but those views are not exactly mainstream. Still, Hugo Grotius, though. That's the 1600s. You know, the the one of the three ideas that were proposed there that holds the least water is the one about Africa. The other two actually have some grounding. I mean, the Vikings did come down the north, the what, the east coast of uh, North America, and we do know that that the uh, west coast was very heavily utilized in a in a coastal settlement pattern. So that wasn't too bad. Uh, the thing is that Grotius also had a very strong connection to other heavy thinkers at his time through the circle of natural philosophers that were known as the Académie Parisienne, organized by the theologian Marin Mersenne. Mersenne's circle included Grotius and also other major European natural philosophers from the early 17th century, including people that even I have heard of, like uh, Descartes, Huygens, say it. Christian Huygens. Okay. Huygens, you're oh, right. Blaise Pascal. Pascal and Galileo. Mersenne promoted Grotius's ideas among these other individuals and made the question of the origins of people in the New World an important scientific question that was being addressed by serious thinkers for the first time. Marcin's circle also included another lawyer whose name was, Joe, do you want to give it a shot? Isaac de la Perere. Th that's way better than, I'm going to say I used Perere. to speak French. We'll just Perere. Say, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, Perere. Get a little more guttural. <laughs> There you go. Is that good? Yeah, that was great. So Perrier was obviously less far, less well known than all these other thinkers, but he turns out to be really important for our story. Obviously, he was French, but Isaac publishes this theological treatise in 1665. Sorry, 1655. That seems to build directly from Grotius' conjectures. Although it's important to note that historian Richard Popkin believes that La Perrier's account was already circulating in Marcin's circle, even before Grotius wrote his dissertation. But that's neither here nor there. In any case, his 1655 book was called Prea Adamite. Nope. That's what it was in Latin anyway. You that, say it. You said, you said it in Latin with a French, faux Prea French Adamite. accent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we would translate it men before Adam. And it was translated right away. And it caused a huge storm. So this book was all about trying to figure out what was going on before the creation story in Genesis. And he made the argument that in order for Adam to have sinned in any meaningful way, there would have had to have been some legal or moral codes already in place that would have said that what he had done was a sin. So there must have been other people already around. He claimed there had been a first creation of Goyim followed by a second creation of Jews. And so Adam was the father of Jews, but not the father of all humankind. 
An argument a lot like that got Giordano Bruno sent to the stake at the turn of the 17th century, so it was definitely playing with fire for La Perere. <laughs> that was a great pun. <laughs> I'm laughing, but La Perere wasn't. Whoa. Oh, he got thrown into prison in the Spanish Netherlands. Uh, that's terrible. <laughs> and, and he was only released when he agreed to travel all the way to Rome and recant and actually convert to Catholicism in front of the Pope. Now, on the way, he got to hang out with Queen, Queen Christina of Sweden, who was also in the middle of converting to Catholicism after her personal tutor, Descartes, had died while hanging out with her in Sweden. Christina was a total badass, if you don't know anything about her. A character that we're going to talk about in a minute also gets hooked up with her. So she's, she's a, a big player in all of this intellectual circle. But this doesn't seem to be addressing much about race. Well... Not unless you realize that the legal argument of La Perere about the origins of law and the origins of Judaism fit nicely into another narrative about slavery. If the descendants of Adam were created separately to have a particular relationship with God, but there were other men before Adam, then it seems to follow that there are multiple origins of people, which is polygenism. Right, and it also seems like it would map pretty easily onto the justification for enslaving Native Americans and Africans. They weren't descendants of Adam. They weren't the same kind of people. There's another person coming out of the 17th century that we need to discuss, and in some ways I think this may be the individual that Eric can start to focus some blame on. Yay! (laughs) Because as far back as 1795, he was being blamed Uh, as the first person to divide people up into somewhat modern types of races by no less than the father of physical anthropology, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, who we'll be talking about in a later podcast. This 17th century character was named Francois Bernier, and he was secretary to and disciple of the philosopher of science, Pierre Gassendi. Gassendi, we mentioned just a minute ago, is one of the members of Mersenne's circle. While Bernier was working for Gassendi, he discovered that he loved to travel and he studied to become a physician so that he could support his own travel. After Gassendi died in 1655, the same year you recall that La Perere's book Men Before Adam was finally published, Bernier took off for more than a decade, traveling in Europe, Africa, and Asia. He spent the better part of a decade between 1658 and 1668, as physician to the last great emperor of the Mughal Empire. And he wrote a book about this uh, experience, the very popular travel book, Travels in the Mughal Empire, about his time there. So what does all this have to do with race? By the time he returned to France in 1669, Bernier had actually seen most of the people he would divide into races, either living in their native habitat or in various slave markets, unlike any other racial classifier for centuries to come. He became a popular part of the literary salon life in Paris, with many of his tales being favored by his contemporaries based on his extensive travels. Bernier was supported for several years by the polymath salonier Madame de la Sablière, who employed him to tutor her in Gassendism. While working with her sometime in the mid-1670s, Bernier penned a short note these were a series of, uh, of writings that he pulled together and called them gifts that he gave to her. And he literally says in the introduction to this note that he's hoping that it will amuse her for 15 minutes or so. This was the development of a discussion that they had had about dividing the world up based on the types of people inhabiting its different provinces. 
This piece is just a few pages long, and almost half of it was devoted to discussing the beauty of the women of the different divisions of the earth, ever the Frenchman. This, <laughs> gift, this gift to Madame de la Sablière was published anonymously almost a decade later in 1684 in the oldest academic journal in Europe, the Journal des Scalons. I'm going to ask again, what does all this have to do with race? The title of this piece translates as a new division of the earth according to the different species or races of men who inhabit it, sent by a famous traveler to an anonymous abbot nearly in these terms. There it, it is. It's usually just called a new division of the earth. And as such, it's the first publication that uses the term race in our more modern sense to divide humanity up into just a few groups. Four in this case that Bernier enumerated, although there were two other groups, the Americans and the blacks of the Cape of Good Hope, that he thought might be their own races. Wait a second. I think I just caught you saying species or races in the title. What's up with that? Okay. Now, he's not trying to be a polygenist here. Uh, We think of these terms, both species and race, in terms of biological classification. But remember, there wasn't any biology back then. And he's using the term in a logic sense. This is the sense that species was a subclass of the larger class, the genus of humans. And this is the way that he would have been trained by Gassendi, and this is the way that many 17th century natural philosophers would have used those terms. We should also point out that he never uses the term race alone. He always uses it in, term with, in combination with species, as species or races. But when he's actually laying out what the four groups are and what they look like, he only uses the term species, not races. So what are these four groups that he named, and, and how does he construct the groups? Well, he, he's paying attention to both appearance and location. Remember, he's trying to define the, the, the geography of the earth based on the people that live in different parts. But the criteria he uses were really neither truly color-based nor continental. And both of these were ideas that would become very dominant in terms of thinking about racial classification during the next century, the, the 18th century. The first species includes most of Europe, North Africa, the Middle East, Central, South, and Southeast Asia, and the Americas. What unifies these groups of people for Bernier is the fact that their skin color is light, except when it isn't, uh, which he claims is due to sun exposure. The second species is the rest of Africa, described by a host of factors, including black skin color not caused by the sun. The third species occupies East Asia, which he considers to be literally, truly white, but with different body build and faces. And the fourth species consists of laps. This is the first in a long series of uh, attempts to define the laps as a separate racial group. These are the modern-day Sami, the uh, inhabitants of the northern part of the Scandinavian peninsula, and a group that Bernier clearly finds disgusting. Although, in modern terms, we would consider them white. Absolutely. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Wait, you mean race is changing <gasps> over time? Okay, so uh, I'm, I'm going to cut you off there, Jim. We've waded through a whole bunch of history in the podcast lately, and it seems like we've finally arrived at the origin of modern race concepts. Where are we headed next? More history. Yay! Yeah! <laughs> Actually, next time, what we're hoping to do is take this story up into the 18th century, where the origins of what some people will say modern scientific racism truly lie with figures like 
Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, who Jim just mentioned this episode. Well, I'm Jim, the physical anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. This has been Speaking of Race. Thanks for listening and stuff. <laughs> and we'll see you next time on uh, with a brand new show. Race. Yeah, that was good. I think you should actually leave the outro like that. <laughs>